Well, thank you very much, John, for that welcome. It is wonderful to be back at the, the university. Uh, uh, been engaged with the festival in previous years on panels and also giving much shorter speeches. So, John, I'm glad to see that I passed the audition this year and have the opportunity to deliver a lecture. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Also acknowledge uh, Professor John Keane and the Sydney Democracy Institute. Uh, the Festival of Democracy uh, looks like it's going strong and it does occupy an important place in the intellectual life of this university and city. Uh, long may it flourish. From whence do prophets come? Many of you will know of the 1976 film Network. In the film's most famous scene, news anchor Howard Beale launches into an extended tirade. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the scene or indeed the film, Beale is a long-time news anchor who has just been given notice that he'll be taken off the air because of poor ratings. A depressed Beale declares to his viewers that he will commit suicide on air during a future broadcast for which he is initially fired. But Beale gets reinstated so that he can enjoy a dignified farewell on screen. In his final news bulletin, Beale delivers a monologue in which he laments the state of society. Now, let me quote the monologue in part. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under their counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere that seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. While having no answers himself, Beale tells his viewers there's at least one thing that they can do. He says they can get out of their chairs, head to their windows and they can shout, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And as you see the scene unfolds, you catch glimpses of his viewers across America running to their windows in their homes doing just that. And so begins this absurd and crazy tale. Beale is given his own show, The Howard Beale Show, by his network. He becomes a popular cult figure. He's touted as a prophet of the airwaves. His television network chases even higher ratings as he grows increasingly erratic. There seem to be no limits to what the network will do to fuel Beale the angry juggernaut. Sometimes you get the feeling that life really does imitate art. Network may have been a satirical film made 40 years ago, but it seems to hit rather close to home today. For we live in times when outrage and sensation are the dominant impulses in our media and when our politics feeds off the anger and fear people have about their society and way of life. Few of us would be surprised to see a political party adopt as its slogan, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This evening I'd like to reflect, reflect on populism, race and democracy. Most of us would agree 
as John highlighted, that our debates about race, immigration and national identity have once again become fraught. Most of us have questions about whether we are able to conduct such debates with the kind of reason, civility and proportion that is needed. What are the prospects that we can in fact do this? And what do the prospects say about the state of our democracy? These are some of the questions I'll seek to answer tonight. In recent times, the politics of race and immigration has convulsed Western liberal democracies across a number of continents. If we were to do a quick catalogue in the United States, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. Since the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin in Florida and Michael Brown in Missouri, we've seen the emergence of the Black Lives Movement. We've seen racial tensions come to the surface in many American towns and cities. Across the Atlantic, we've seen Brexit. The referendum on Britain leaving the European Union certainly had the feel of a plebiscite on immigration. Tellingly, the Brexit vote appeared to cause a steep rise in hate crimes uh, over in Britain. According to authorities, there were more than 3,000 allegations of hate crimes made to police in the week before and after the June 23rd vote. That's a 42% spike compared to the previous year. Then if we look across the channel in France, we find that the Front National leader, Marine Le Pen, is surging in the polls. It's almost certain that she will proceed to the second round of voting for next year's presidential election. As it's been widely reported in the media, mayors from about 30 French towns along the Riviera have also enforced a ban on the bikini. Many have said they will refuse to accept a recent ruling by the Council of State, France's highest administrative court, which held the ban to be unconstitutional. And then there's the rest of Europe. There we see social anxiety and cultural fear very clearly. Austria's presidential election in May saw the far-right Freedom Party candidate Gerhard Holsinger come within a whisker of claiming victory. He'll have a second chance, given the election is being rerun. In Germany, for much of this year, we've seen the far-right alternative for Germany polling well above 15%. Earlier this week, it even outpolled uh, the Christian Democrats in the state election in Chancellor Angela Merkel's home state. In the Netherlands, Geert Wilders' party for freedom leads the polls there. The party, of course, pledges to ban all Islamic symbols and mosques and across Scandinavia, anti-immigrant far-right parties have been growing in popularity. Some are even partners in coalition conservative governments. And then there's Australia, here, where we've seen far-right political organisations emerge or re-emerge. During the past two years, protest movements targeting Islam have received significant media attention. Our new parliament contains a number of... Uh, ..whose country it is, who have uh, lived in this country for some 40,000 years, whose country it remains and shall forever remain. Tonight, um, this uh, event, uh, part of a festival, has been made possible by a number of uh, friends and colleagues. I want to thank especially 
our Sydney Democracy Network uh, team, led by um, Lindy Baker, who is also doubling as a photographer against uh, the wall. And in addition to the observations I've made already about a number of democracies, the numbers suggest that this is true across the developed world more broadly. Data shows a clear surge in the share of the vote for populist authoritarian parliamentary democracies across 34 OECD countries. You might say then that these are indeed populist times. Yet what we mean by populism isn't always clear. And I'd like now just to spend a little bit of time unpacking what populism in fact involves. At first, just about everyone would agree that the politics of populism invokes a divide between the people and the elite. Populists speak on behalf of the people who are citizens of virtue and against elites who are corrupted in some way. Now, that's the basic premise of, of populism. Uh, but beyond this, there is a great deal of disagreement about whether patriot, uh, populism has some ideological character or whether it describes something more aesthetic or rhetorical in politics. In his recent and timely work, uh, Ben Moffat, one of John's former students, uh, has helpfully described the global rise of populism as involving a political style. It features an appeal, indeed, to the people versus the elite, but it does so using bad manners rather than the conventional decorum of politics and by the constant evocation of crisis, breakdown and threats. As Moffat highlights, populist politics has been favoured by the shift from old media to new media. In a world where reporters in tightly resourced newsrooms now have to file multiple stories a day and have less time to conduct research or interview sources, firing off a zinger on Twitter or posting a retaliatory video on Facebook makes for easy stories. And the populist politician is well suited to this contemporary media where news outlets are hungry for continuous content within a so-called 24-7 news cycle. There's another source of disagreement, though, about populism, and it concerns its sources. For many, the appeal of populism lies in economic insecurity. If populists succeed by instilling fear, it can only be because sections of society are losing out from globalisation or economic change. This conventional wisdom states that populism taps into the anxieties of the old working class rather than the bourgeois middle class. It's worth noting, though, that the evidence on this doesn't appear entirely convincing. For example, in the United States, the idea that Donald Trump has enjoyed his political rise by appealing to economically vulnerable white people is complicated by some facts. Uh, the fact that his presidential candidacy, for instance, has coincided with an improving economy and dropping unemployment in America. One political writer has also noted that the average Trump supporting household draws a median income of $72,000 a year, which is in fact $16,000 greater 
than that of the average American. If we were to look here in Australia, we also see some other uh, evidence which, which challenges this economic uh, uh, portrayal of populism. Uh, the emergence of Pauline Hanson's One Nation here has occurred in spite of the economy uh, being buoyant. We haven't experienced a downturn here for more than 20 years. It's true, of course, that some areas, such as those in regional Queensland, have stagnated uh, since the end of the mining boom, but the circumstances don't readily support a simple economic reading of events. Uh, whatever the situation is, though, I, I believe there's a rather troubling question uh, for anyone concerned with the rise of right-wing populism here in Australia. If this is what is happening in a relatively buoyant economic period, what will happen if there is a recession with widespread consequences? If we're seeing this now, what happens if the economy goes bad? If we are to explain the contemporary rise of populism, especially that of the right-wing variety, we are safest to say that the sources are multiple. Yes, economic anxiety may be a factor, but there has also clearly been cultural fear at play. And across the West we see that this new populism has been married to an aggressive nationalism. Supporters of populist right-wing parties are united by a fear that they will lose cultural status, power and privilege. They are uniform, for example, in their hostility towards immigration and multiculturalism, things which they blame for undermining unity or corrupting the national culture populist rile against a supposed political correctness that has suffocated public debate and has subverted freedom of speech. They also agitate against a reverse racism that supposedly has seen majority ethnic or cultural groups become discriminated against in favour of minority migrant ones. Within all this, we see readily those rhetorical elements synonymous with a populist political style. Immigration and multiculturalism are things supposedly denied by the majority of ordinary people who love their country. The good manners, sanctioned by so-called political correctness, are rejected in favour of a coarser but more authentic freedom of speech. And the allegedly unfair treatment of majority groups and the ascendancy of multicultural tolerance is threatening a moral and cultural crisis within society. There's one aspect of populism that warrants further investigation, and that's the relationship that it has with this concept of the people. Now, most of us take for granted that democracy must have something to do with the people. That idea is so eloquently captured by Lincoln when he said, government of the people, by the people, for the people. But as political theorist Margaret Canavan has illustrated through her groundbreaking work on this topic, the people has traditionally remained a topic inadequately explored. While frequently invoked in political debates, the people has tended not to be an object of serious moral or political analysis. Uh, here I want to trace a few dimensions of populism's historical development, particularly around this notion of, of the people. It begins by observing 
that representative politics has, of course, uh, always had an inherent sense of populism. It has embodied the idea that democratic power ultimately resides in the people. In its earlier forms, though, representative democracy was anything but rule by the people. The suffrage wasn't necessarily universal and though democratic virtue was something that emanated from the body of plain folk or ordinary people, uh, this was a different group to the masses. A Jeffersonian democracy in the United States, for instance, contrasted the landed virtue of the educated yeoman farmer with the elitism of the manufacturers and merchants of the cities and the aristocrats of the old world. It wasn't until later that the concept of the people became more salient. Perhaps the seminal populist democratic politician was Andrew Jackson in the United States. Jackson was the first of his kind, a trailblazing every man hero. He was the first Western president elected, bearing in mind here the early 19th century and the push westwards uh, with, with America. He was a teenage combatant in the Revolutionary War, a frontier lawyer, a celebrated military commander. And unlike other men who had been elected president, Jackson had rather limited formal education. His rival, John Quincy Adams, would demean him as an illiterate backwoodsman, and I quote, a barbarian who could not write a sentence of grammar and hardly could spell his name. Arguably, though, we see in the age of Jackson an early template for populist democratic politics. While in office, Jackson transformed the office of the American president. For Jackson considered himself someone who spoke for the entire nation, a national tribune, if you will, who answered to no one except the American people. During his presidency, the spread of democracy saw power transfer from educated elites, the educated yeoman celebrated by Jefferson, to ordinary people and to political parties. In addition, there was Jackson's style. His rivalry with Quincy Adams, the son of former President John Adams, was one that saw him burnish his credentials as a man of the people up against the aristocrats of the East. There was also in Jackson a ruthlessness and a vindictiveness he had a notoriously quick temper, a tendency to swear blood-curdling oaths, and he would constantly vow to, his, to destroy his enemies. He had a record of multiple duels and brawls. On his last day as president, Jackson said, in fact, that he had but two regrets, that he had been unable to shoot Henry Clay or to hang John C. Cahoon, two of his great political enemies. Now, I've taken this slight Jacksonian detour just to underline a few things about the popular style. It's not meant to be a quixotic excursion into American political history. Uh, in addition to those features already highlighted, we might say that populist politics is not averse to using the people to justify expanded political power, even authoritarian power grabs. What Moffat has called bad manners can also go beyond matters of mere comportment uh, but spill over into an essential vindictive public nastiness. Uh, the sorts of things you'll detect 
for example, in modern populists like Donald Trump. In modern terms, power grabs or bad manners can be directed to particular racial groups, which brings me back to this concept of the people and how it's defined. One reason that right-wing populism is so troubling is that its adherents tend to have a conception of the people that is defined in ethnic or racial terms. We see this clearly in the stance that right-wing populists take on immigration and the exclusions they propose on certain immigrant groups. When right-wing populists conceive of the American people or the British people or the German people or indeed the Australian people, they do not necessarily have in mind a group that may leave room for multicultural populations. The more moderate among them may be willing to admit different ethnicities or races to a national group uh, begrudgingly, only to the extent that these people discard their cultural differences and assimilate to the majority identity. What animates the modern populist understanding of the people then is often an organic or nativist nationalism. The people becomes tied to a strong and authentic sense of national identity. This is a national identity defined less in terms of civic values or political culture, but more in terms of ethnic ancestry and racial character. There's one other source of tension between populism and race. It may not be as fundamental as how the people are defined, but it nonetheless can have profound influence on our ability to talk about race. I'm referring here to populist invocations of political correctness in our public debates. It's become an article of faith for many to claim that political correctness has stifled debates, that it has prevented people from saying things which they would otherwise be entitled or free to say, or to put it in the language used by populists, radical or liberal or socialist elites are using political correctness to regulate political discourse by defining opposing views as bigoted and illegitimate. Now, while the phrase political correctness has entered into the popular lexicon, uh, political correctness is a fiction. It's a fiction because it's a concept that's been re-engineered over the past three decades to silence debates about equality and recognition. The term political correctness has pathologised civility and good manners as things that involve ideological censorship. Yet in diagnosing a creeping elitist censorship, the critics of political correctness are themselves seeking to regulate political discourse by defining opposing views as repressive and illegitimate. No one these days wishes to be called politically correct. No one wants to be too effete to be able to have a debate or discussion. Who's being repressed and who's being cast as illegitimate now? If we turn to our contemporary discourse about race in Australia, we do see the effects of this political engineering. We regularly have, of course, public controversies about race, but it's striking that commentators howl down criticisms of racism with cries of political correctness. We've got to the point where often 
It is a worse offence to call out racism than to perpetrate racism itself, where it's now commonplace for commentators and politicians and public figures to attack anti-racism as itself a form of racism. It's no accident that some commentators will automatically denounce anyone who dares to speak out against racism as a member of some politically correct urban elite intent on censoring the authentic, irreverent sentiments of ordinary Australians. For most of the past three years, we have had constant debate about Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. This is the section which makes it unlawful to do an act that offends, insults, humiliates or intimidates someone because of their race. Last week in Parliament we saw a push to amend Section 18C of the Act with a number of senators seeking to delete the words offend and insult from the section. In 2014, of course, you know, Yogi Berra would say it's deja vu all over again. In 2014, the, the federal government did, of course, attempt to repeal Section 18C following an election pledge to do so. The proposed change was abandoned after widespread public opposition to the government's proposal. One poll in uh, March 2014 found that 88% of people agreed it should remain unlawful to offend, insult or humiliate someone because of their race. Other research indicates strong majority support for the retention of the current section. In one sense, the debate about Section 18C has already been had and has already been resolved. The government has indicated it has no intention of revisiting the issue. Within this new parliament, it is unlikely that any proposed amendment will succeed. And yet, agitation over the legislation continues and will likely to do so for at least the life of this parliament. Now, I've said constantly, consistently, over the past three years that there is no case for changing Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. The law should remain in its current form. Even so, nothing in a democracy is ever off limits from debate. Clearly, there is renewed public interest about the Act. But we can only hope that any public discussion of the Act is based on an accurate understanding of what it means and how it operates. Uh, this naturally begins with understanding the history of Section 18C. The section was introduced to the Act a little over 20 years ago, in 1995. It came in response to the recommendations of three major reports and inquiries. Uh, the National Inquiry into Racist Violence, conducted by my predecessor, Irene Moss, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Australian Law Reform Commission's Multiculturalism and the Law Report. These inquiries found that the targets of racist violence or harassment had little recourse to existing civil remedies under common law. While the Racial Discrimination Act was introduced in 1975, for its first 20 years of operation it did not contain provisions covering acts of racial hatred in public. Uh, to explain what that means, if, for example, you were discriminated 
against in the provision of senators who support a ban on Muslim immigration, the establishment of a royal commission into Islam and the abolition of the Racial Discrimination Act in its entirety. For many observers, we are seeing in all this a pattern, a rise in right-wing populism, where once populist politics were merely periodic features of modern politics, there are clear signs that they are now here to stay. Important that the law step in. It is essential that the law continues to play this role because the law reflects our values as a society. The law sets a standard for what is acceptable behaviour. If, as a society, we repudiate racism, we reject it, then it's only right that we have laws that express that commitment. In philosophical terms, the current law recognises that acts of racial hatred may inflict harms on people. There's the personal harm, obviously, that can take place when someone is racially abused or vilified. A significant body of research, done in particular with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, demonstrates the clear link between regular experience of racial abuse and poor health, whether that's physical poor health or mental health. Then there are the social harms associated with racial vilification. Racial vilification generates fear and distrust. It feeds conflict and ugliness. And if we leave it unchecked, it can embolden or validate discrimination. It can undermine, moreover, the entitlement that every member of our society should have to being treated equally. The idea that we can all go about our business and not have to apprehend that we will be subject to abuse, hatred or intimidation. In short, racial vilification damages our cohesion and our decency as a society. Now, there are critics of the Act and many of the Act's critics would say that Section 18C goes too far, that it unreasonably restricts freedom of speech, that it is too broad in its scope. Well, I'd like you to answer some of the questions that are frequently raised about this provision. Now, these are the questions I get all the time, so I'm preempting the Q&A here. Uh, first, does Section 18C unjustly restrict free speech? It's not always remembered that Section 18C is accompanied by Section 18D of the Act, which protects any fair comment or reporting on a matter of public interest and any sentiment expressed in the course of any statement, publication, discussion or debate made or held for any genuine academic, artistic or scientific purpose. So provided that something is done reasonably and in good faith, any fair comment or public discussion will be exempt from being in breach of Section 18C. The RDA is in fact one of the few legal instruments in Australian law that contains an explicit protection of free speech. Given the broad protection of free speech in Section 18D, we are entitled to ask, why is it that people want to make it acceptable to racially offend or racially insult others in ways that are not done reasonably or in good faith, in ways that have no genuine purpose in the public interest. 
I mean, what is it that people want to say that they can't already say? But has Section 18D actually worked in practice, the critics ask? Short answer, yes, it has. There have been numerous cases considered by the courts where something has caused racial offence, insult, humiliation or intimidation, but has been held to enjoy the protection of Section 18D. The case of Brofo, where cartoons in the West Australian newspaper about which Aboriginal people had complained were deemed to have been artistic work and fair comment, in spite of causing racial offence. There's the case of Kelly Country and Beards, involving a satirical performer who purported to be an Aboriginal person called King Billy Coke Bottle. In that case, the court again noted that while the act may have been offensive or insulting, it fell within the category of artistic work protected by Section 18D. The case as well uh, involving Pauline Hanson of Walsh and Hanson in 2000, where a book published in Pauline Hanson's name was found to have racially offensive material but was deemed to have been protected because it was a good faith engagement in public debate. Then some may ask, but don't we, shouldn't we, nonetheless, have a right to express free speech even if it's racist? Well, I would say no right or freedom can ever be absolute. One person's freedom ends where another person's freedom begins. I may be free to swing my arms in the air before me, but that freedom ends where your face begins. Where acts impinge upon the rights and freedoms of others, it is only right that we hold it to account. And we accept all sorts of limitations on free speech in our society. We accept, for example, the limitations placed by national security laws, defamation laws, trade practices laws, criminal summary offence laws. You know, Thousands of people in New South Wales are convicted of using offensive language or engaging in offensive conduct in public. We have people paying six-figure damages for defamation. I'll give you the case of uh, the restaurant Roco Coco, where Fairfax had to fork out $600,000 because a restaurant reviewer had said that the chicken dish was outstandingly dull there and that this was a restaurant that blighted the culinary landscape of Sydney. Now, if we except that you can be convicted criminally of using offensive language in public or that you may be liable for paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for defaming someone's reputation, offending their reputation, then it's only acceptable that you're also held to account if you racially vilify uh, others. But why should there be a law against merely offending or insulting someone? Well, Section 18C is concerned with acts that offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate because of someone's race or ethnicity. That's a different thing to mere insult or offence. And there's a difference between insulting someone for the football team they support or offending someone because of their political ideology. That's because racial offence and racial insult strikes at the heart of a person's being and their dignity, the part of their identity that comes from their background and ancestry. You know, pogroms aren't organised against people based on the football teams they support, but they are organised against people because of their race and their ethnicity. Having a law that covers acts that offend, insult, 
humiliate or intimidate because of race uh, is, 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 is having a law that nips racial hatred in the bud and which prevents it from escalating into graver harms. A few more questions. Hasn't Section 18C in practice seen trivial cases reach court though? Well, the Australian Human Rights Commission, as the body receiving complaints about racial vilification, declines complaints that are trivial, misconceived or lacking in substance. And the typical cases involving Section 18C have seen courts uh, uh, deal with with cases, for instance, where Aboriginal people have been described as criminal trash and as scum that can be used as landfill. They've dealt with circumstances where a man was verbally abused in a building foyer and called a Singaporean prick and told to go back to Singapore. They've dealt with a, a situation where a website published material denying the Holocaust that occurred and which expressed virulent anti-Semitism. These are the typical cases that are dealt with in the courts. Uh, Finally, uh, shouldn't uh, uh, 18C avoid protecting subjective hurt feelings? A question I get asked frequently. Uh, Well, the courts have held the standard to be met for Section 18C uh, involves conduct that has serious and profound effects. These are acts or conduct which are not to be likened to mere slights. The court's been clear about this. Moreover, the test for whether an act breaches Section 18C is objective. The provision of 18C makes it unlawful to do an act that is reasonably likely in all the circumstances to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate on the grounds of race. In other words, the fact that someone believes they have been racially offended or insulted or intimidated or humiliated is not enough to mean that something has been unlawful. Whether there's been a breach of the section is judged by a court according to the reasonable person of the target ethnic or racial group. Those then are some of the facts about section 18C and D and about how they operate. It is difficult to see exactly how it is that these parts of the law pose the kind of threat to liberal democracy and free speech that warrants them being the most pressing political issue, among the most pressing political issues to be debated during the first week of the 45th Commonwealth Parliament. If I may now offer some concluding thoughts on what all this means for democracy. The resurgence of populist politics across Western democracies and its clear racial dimensions present undoubted challenges to democracy. In particular, it raises questions about how democracies must deal with social change and social power. Those who are attracted to the seductive certitude of populist nationalism tend to be those who feel a loss of status and power. They want to reassert their social and cultural standing. They resent immigrants and others whom they feel are threatening their cultural way of life. Democracies must tread carefully here. The philosopher Philip Pettit, in his Republican Theories of Democracy, 
has written about the relationship between freedom and democracy. On a, on a Republican understanding, freedom must mean more than just enjoying non-interference, but must mean that people are not dominated by others. It goes to the ability of people to be citizens who can make collective decisions. This is the Republican idea of freedom as non-domination. Much of, pol much of populist politics, of course, sanctions a form of domination. It says to its followers and adherents that certain members of society have a right to impose their ways onto others in the name of the people. As we've seen, such domination can frequently assume a racialised tone. Populist nationalism seeks to put certain minorities back in their place. It demands certain minorities submit to the ways that things are done around here. Or demands that they just put up with racism and be grateful that there isn't a higher price paid for freedom. This aspect of power and domination comes through frequently in our debates about race and free speech. Here in Australia we have seen populists joined in one respect by so-called libertarians or classical liberals. These libertarians insist that the best way of fighting racist speech is through more speech. They argue that racism should never be driven underground through laws against vilification but rather be exposed in public through constant debate. The idea here is that scrutiny will lift us, all of us, to heights of enlightened tolerance. As one such libertarian proclaimed in a recent episode of ABC's Q&A, we should even celebrate hate speech, welcome it, because it gives anti-racists an opportunity to challenge racial hatred. It is true that good speech can on occasions overcome bad speech. Don't get me wrong. But what about those situations where it doesn't? What if someone from a marginal or vulnerable social position can't speak back? And these aren't questions that come naturally to those who may be accustomed to enjoying social power and social privilege. Indeed, while the idea of flushing out racism may sound good in theory, it is never so simple in practice. Now, I've been in, in this job for three years and I've not yet had one person say to me in those three years that they are grateful and glad that they've been subjected to racial abuse, that they've been happy that they've been slandered or demeaned or humiliated because it's brought out racism into the open. Few would celebrate the experience of having bigotry brought out into the open. Most would prefer that it never happened in the first place. For many libertarians who hold passionate views about the Racial Discrimination Act, the experience of racism can seem to exist only in the abstract. Many put forward their views as though it were a contribution to a high school debate or to an undergraduate tutorial. Many appear to have been insulated from the reality of racism or the harms of vilification. But if we're talking about lifting people to new heights of tolerance, let's remember the burden of lifting doesn't fall on everyone equally. 
What we see here, though, is the emergence in our political culture of a particular aesthetic understanding of freedom, one that elevates racism into a strangely sublime experience. Edmund Burke once explained the sublime the following way, and I quote, If pain is not carried to violence and terror is not conversant about the present destruction of the person, they are capable of producing delight. Not pleasure, but a sort of delightful horror, a sort of tranquility tinged with terror, which, as it belongs to self-preservation, is one of the strongest of all the passions. See what Burke is saying there? Terror and fear makes us feel alive. But it's revealing that among populists and libertarians alike that we hear so much about the freedom to unleash bigotry but not much at all about the freedom of those subjected to such delightful horror. There is another and final challenge to our democracy. Most of us would accept that democracy isn't just about elections but is also about ethos. A democracy involves people, citizens, but acting in a certain way. In a functioning democracy, we have citizens who deliberate. They must be able to weigh the evidence, to have reasoned judgment, to know fact from fiction, to know right from wrong. Citizens must be able to resist the windy exhortations of demagogues. They think for themselves, rather than acting on command and running to windows when they're told to yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This doesn't mean that democracy is a sterile business. Citizens don't act like cold, calculating machines. Citizens are still men and women who have blood running through their veins. They're still people who are moved by belief, get angry at injustice and are inspired by beauty. But we assume that democratic citizens don't let their emotions and prejudices spill over. We assume that they will conduct debates that are grounded in facts and reason. We assume that there will be a measure of civility and proportion. The global rise in populism is a direct challenge to this. What happens when people don't respect reason or refuse to respect others? What happens when people are willing to push the limits of tolerance for political gain? And what happens if today's right-wing populism may somehow become the respectable opinion of tomorrow's mainstream? I'm not yet sure that we know the answers, or if we do, that we will like the answers. But as with any democracy, we must accept that we get the government and the politics we deserve. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.